All right, Ephesians chapter 4 once again this morning. Now, nobody feel bad if you don't have an outline because you didn't get one or you lost yours. I'm not going to shame you this once. Uh, Does anybody else need an outline? Raise your hand if you do. All right, no problem. David, would you make these go away, please, into the proper hands? Some of those got dropped in the snow pile, and so they look a little uh, customized, but uh, you can still read them. Ephesians chapter 4. I'm not joking. I did drop them in the snow pile. I did. So remember, like two weeks ago, I had them all spread out up here drying before I preached, so they didn't uh, run too bad. All righty. Ephesians 4, if you're there, let's go ahead and stand. We'll read this passage together. And we'll begin once again in verse 29. Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Father, help us again this morning, we pray. Lord, we are needy each and every week, each and every day. Father, we are encouraged by Your promises that tell us to keep coming. If we lack wisdom, Lord, that You give it when we ask. That You want us to understand Your Word. You want us to have everything necessary for life and godliness. Father, it's up to us to be willing to hear and to be doers of the Word and not hearers only. So Father, I pray You'd move in mighty power this morning to not just help us to understand, but move in our hearts to actually do something where it's necessary. Father, I pray You'd help each of us to see ourselves as, in a sense, alone in Your presence this morning. And to hear Your Word. Father, help me as I speak. Help me to give You glory by making people think right about You. Oh Lord, let Christ be exalted here this morning. Amen. I realize for several messages, we have read that text as kind of a starting point. Zeroing in on that word there, forgiveness. We are actually going to go through the text this morning, not with a fine-tooth comb, but we are going to walk through it a little bit, because it does, of course, have a great deal to do with the topic we're going through. Obviously, we usually just march our way through Bible books, but I think it's necessary sometimes to take a detour and deal with certain topics more in depth. And of course, we've spent several weeks talking about understanding and exercising biblical forgiveness. Every phrase of that, or every word of that, by the way, is important. To understand it, to exercise it, and it has to be biblical forgiveness. We illustrated at length, and I hope it's stuck in our minds, that today 
the replacements and substitutes and misconceptions for what God uh, shows to be forgiveness are legion. They're everywhere. And of course, the evidence of that is on every hand. Forgiveness is, I think, one of the most misunderstood of all, I don't like the word religious, but you know what I mean, in all of religious terminology. And again, one of the major keys to understanding it is paying close attention, uh, for instance, to what this particular text says. When it says, forgive as God uh, for Christ's sake hath forgiven you, it's not just saying never deal with sin, never bring anything up, just be a doormat. Uh, there's a time to turn the other cheek, yes. But it's so important to understand as God has forgiven you, in other words, God Himself is the example. Uh, so we spent last week going through God's forgiveness uh, that He has set for us as an example. And once again, forgiveness is not merely ushy-gushy feelings. Forgiveness is not uh, pretending like an offense didn't happen. Forgiveness is not minimizing, oh, it wasn't that big of a deal. Sometimes it was that big of a deal. Remember, God didn't lose His attribute of righteousness because He came to die on the cross in our place. We deal with interpersonal sin. We do it righteously. Right along with grace. So forgiveness is none of those substitutions. It's not this Freudian idea of try to find some sort of scapegoat. I do what I do because of my parents or because of whatever. I know people can influence us. But we have got to come to grips with the fact you are responsible for your actions. Boy, has that been lost in this country. Uh, by the way, that's why people don't like real Bible counseling much anymore. You see, it's easy for the flesh to hear, oh, you poor thing, you victim, you did that because of whoever or whatever. Now listen, again, we, do hurts come? Yes. They do. But nobody else's actions excuse my own rebellion against God. Period. That has got to be maintained. So again, biblical counseling, which is focused on root causes, is going to cause people to examine their own life in the light of the Word of God. You have to get people away from them and this and that situation and trying to shift blame and trying to make excuse. And I know God says this, but, 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 but there is no but. Listen, God does not speak merely for the joy of hearing Himself speak. Right? He gives us this book because it's potent, it's powerful, and it's necessary. Wisdom is listening to every word that He's spoken. Forgiveness, biblically, you'll remember, is a promise uh, basically, it's a promise not to hold a particular offense against a person anymore. Uh, when God says to you, you are forgiven, I understand you don't hear a voice shout down from the heavens, but in effect what's happening is God is saying, I'm not going to hold this against you anymore. Uh, when we say to another person, I forgive you, well, when the fullest circle of forgiveness happens, what I'm verbally extending is a promise that I'm not going to hold this offense against you anymore. That's the fullest picture. Now we've been looking at forgiveness as there on your outline in front of you, it basically dividing into four different realms. And again, I struggle with that word. I don't like the word realms either, but for lack of a better word, four different nuances or shades or 
categories or whatever you want to call it, but four different types or four different manifestations of forgiveness. And the first two have to do with God's forgiveness of mankind as the example. And we talked about that in depth last week. It has got to be maintained in the New Testament when you see the word forgiveness in relation to God that sometimes it's talking about judicially, sometimes it's talking about parentally. In other words, sometimes it has to do with God taking away your sins as a one-time act, bringing you into salvation, bringing you into a relationship with Him for all time. That's a one-time action that God does. And of course, the condition of that is what? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's the condition. Now, when somebody's in fellowship with God, somebody has been made his child, they've been made a new creature, now God calls you to live according to what He's made you, what He's done. And uh, part of that, maintaining fellowship with God, is dealing openly and honestly with our own sin in our everyday walk. And uh, the key passage on that, of course, we were there for some time last week, is uh, 1 John chapter 1. Remember, John warns about there our tremendous capacity for self-deception. Three times at the end of that chapter, we see a verse start, verse 6, verse 8, verse 10. If we say, you remember? And so he's talking about uh, the tendency for us to, to make excuses and to say that things are different than they really are. And he calls us out and says, look, if you say you're walking in fellowship with God and you're living in darkness and evil, you're a liar. If you say that you have no sin nature, you don't grapple with indwelling evil, you are mistaken. If you say you've never sinned terribly and rebelled against God in the past, you're wrong. And of course, he lays down the condition. Look, God does not expect from real Christian people perfection. That's not to say there's an excuse for sin. Sin is always our failure to appropriate what God has given. You can't ever sin and say, well, you know, it's... Not really my fault, it's just nonsense. But God, what He expects from us in fellowship with Him is open and honest, consistent dealing with that sin. You see, our sin nature doesn't keep us from fellowship with God. What keeps us from fellowship with God is our refusal to deal with the sin that we yield to when it actually happens. God's very frank with your nature. Yes, you are sinful even as a Christian. Romans 7 makes that abundantly clear. But the question is, what do you do when you fail and yield to that sin nature, sin against God and grieve Him, what then? And John says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive. Now, of course, that's not talking about coming to salvation. That's maintaining fellowship with God, with Him as my Father. The condition is confess sin. Uh, you hear it oftentimes, somebody will say, we need to go to God and ask forgiveness. Now please understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying it's bad to phrase it that way as long as it's properly understood. Confessing sin and asking forgiveness are not the same thing. You can ask forgiveness all day long without confessing anything. Remember, confession is speaking the same thing. It's coming onto the same page with God. It's stopping the excuses. It's stopping trying to dance around it. It's stopping all of that stuff. And it's saying, this is what it is. I've rebelled against God. I am wrong. I'm stepping onto God's side, speaking the same thing. That's confession. Now, somebody can ask forgiveness and never, ever deal with the sin. Oh, God, forgive me. I... 
I mean, well, you know, truth be known, I have all intention of doing it again tomorrow, but hey, I, I, I forgive me. No, because what God's after is heart fellowship with you. Let me ask you something. If you ask forgiveness for a sin that you know full well you have every intention to do tomorrow, are you in fellowship with God? No. No. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Okay, so God's forgiveness toward us is conditional. To come to salvation, it's believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. God takes your sins away. When it comes to fellowship with God, confess our sins. That's an ongoing thing. And by the way, I would, I would encourage you, don't wait till the end of the day. You know when you should confess sin? When you're aware of it. It's not this jumble, oh God, forgive me for everything I did today. Oh. Hey, the more you're sensitive to the leading of the Spirit of God, the more, the minute it comes up, deal with it. Deal with it. Deal with it. Why? Because I want to walk in fellowship with my Father. That's why. All right, so that's God's forgiveness. Now, I mentioned at the beginning of this, there is a progression in these realms of forgiveness. Okay, Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Meaning the only person in the world who can exercise the complete picture of biblical forgiveness is a person who is a real Christian. I say real Christian because 8 out of 10 Americans say they're Christian. What is a Christian? A Christian is a person who's realized his own utter depravity and rebellion against the Holy God. He's realized he cannot save himself. He's realized he cannot change his nature. He's realized God demands perfect righteousness and he's totally doomed. And he's come and he's taken God's offer of salvation that yes, one died in my place. Yes, the Son of God was slaughtered for me. All of God's wrath was poured out on him on that cross. And when he walked out of the tomb, he proved he had the victory over sin and that my evil didn't overwhelm him. And when Jesus said, it is finished, the price for your eternal hell was finished. A Christian person is one who's come and taken that as a gift and said, I will take Christ as Savior. I'm not going to trust in what I've done. I'm not trusting in a church. I'm not trusting in a pastor. I'm not trusting in a denomination. I'm not trusting in anything else but Christ. He is my substitute and my hope. That's a Christian. The only person who can exercise real forgiveness, by the way, as God has forgiven him, is somebody who's a Christian. All right, now going from that, let's say somebody is a Christian, they're really saved, but they're not really in fellowship with the Lord. I would ask you, if you're not willing to deal squarely with your own ongoing sin, how in the world are you going to deal rationally with somebody else's? You're not. So there has to be judicial forgiveness. There has to be a, a reasonable walk in fellowship with God. That brings us to the final two realms. Our forgiveness of our fellow mortals. Isn't it a loud testimony to our own evil hearts that oftentimes it's this forgiveness that we have the hardest time with? Think about that. I mean, if we're not careful, we get used to the idea of God forgiving us. We lose the sense of wonder. We lose the sense of the magnitude of what took place. 
We lose the sense of the condemnation that we dreaded and we knew we deserved. It becomes ho-hum. Oh yeah, God's forgiving. As though that's just a cold theological fact and not something that should shock our soul and humble us in the dust. And so we get used to God's forgiveness, but then some fellow creature of the dust, a sinner just as depraved as we are, just as finite and pathetically weak and blind and helpless, here He comes and offends us. And now our flesh rises up to titanic proportions. How dare you do that to me? Don't you know who I am? I don't deserve that kind of treatment. If only people knew what happened to me. Part of that, I think, is things get much more complex here. In other words, to receive God's forgiveness, you have to come onto the same page as Him. It's it's really kind of (laughs) one-sided. What I mean by that is, uh, when you are at odds with God, you are the problem 100% of the time. I mean, there's no sense of you and God forgiving one another. I like the nonsense I read a few weeks ago of the people saying you have to forgive God. What a pathetic joke. So when we're out of fellowship with God, we're the issue. It's one-sided. Are you going to be on His side or not? It seems fairly cut and dry. At least it should be. Okay, but now you add interpersonal conflict and what do you have? Now it's a matter of both parties coming onto the same page with God and burying the proverbial hatchet amongst themselves. Now what's the other problem with that facet? The old-fashioned parent sin. What's the parent sin? It's a five-letter word with I in the middle. Pride. Pride. Well, I'm not going to deal with that. Look at that. Why, if I deal with that, they'll think, hmm? whose voice is that? It's not God's. So those things definitely make this more difficult. Uh, pride is a satanically inspired master at finding masks to wear and excuses to hide behind. Pride is so good at that. And pride is good at feigning humility. Pride is good at making us the victim. Pride is good at puffing itself up. Uh, Pride is good at melting into tears when necessary. Pride's a shapeshifter. A chameleon. The Word of God has so much to say about it, and it's such an important part of the whole picture of forgiveness to be aware of that. Now in these final two realms of forgiveness, of course, one is dealing with offenses Godward vertically. Being in equilibrium with the Lord, regardless of what happens to me, regardless of what anybody else does. And then the other one is being able to deal person to person. That's a vital part of forgiveness too. That has to happen. There are times we are commanded to do that. Uh, We're going to deal with the manward part of it later. It won't be next week or probably even the next week because we got baptism and resurrection Sunday. We'll see uh, where we are in a couple weeks. But uh, we will get back to this and deal with the interpersonal side. Uh, This morning we're going to confine ourselves to dealing with offenses Godward. Now having a right perspective about hurts that come between us and the Lord. The Lord's never the author of sin, but He sure is the author who lets difficulty in our life sometimes that hurts like crazy for our own good. 
Now it reads on your outline there in that third realm of forgiveness, it's the level of forgiveness that can always be extended regardless of how others respond to confrontation. In other words, this type of right view between me and my life and the Lord can always take place no matter what anybody else does. Uh, This is where this whole doctrine gets messed up. This is one of the spots. And it's made to contradict the interpersonal part. Look, these are both important facets. It's important to understand I can't make people do certain things. I can't extend forgiveness completely if it's not dealt with. But on the other side, I've got to deal with the vertical component of this, of this coming through the sovereign hand of a loving God to me. In other words, if a person doesn't respond favorably when they're confronted about their error, or let's say you can't confront them for whatever reason, maybe they're dead. That is not a blank check to hold on to evil attitudes for years to come. See, here's the deal. You and I are responsible for our own spiritual heart condition no matter what anybody else does. What's the admonition in Proverbs 4.23? You know it well, I bet. Keep everyone else's heart. Keep thy heart with all diligence. For out of it are the issues of life. Life problems come from heart problems, spiritually speaking. Fruit hangs on the tree because of root issues. This time of year, spring is sort of showing up. I got to build some bird boxes and the bird house, the, the, the bluebirds were out. Uh, they were out house shopping like you guys this week and they were checking things out and hired himself a real, realtor bird. And, uh, but this time of year, farmers are out starting to get their fields prepared for the spring that they think is coming. You know, there's many things a farmer can't control. Uh, can a farmer control the weather? Uh, I mean, does he really have a say in whether it's drought or deluge? I mean, does he have a say in if the ice melts in April or June, or if it snows in August? Uh, Can a farmer control the economy? I mean, is he really ultimately responsible for what his product sells for? Not really. A farmer can't control natural disasters. Uh, If a tornado is going to come through, especially east of here, Or a microburst. This happened to a friend of ours. They spent three years tending uh, grapevines. One of the first table grape developers in the state of Idaho. Three years of work. One afternoon, a microburst windstorm comes through, and in seconds, three years of work was destroyed. Flattened completely. Boom. A farmer can't control grass fires and locusts. Uh, infestations. In fact, a farmer can't really perform the miracle of a seed sprouting. I mean, we assume you put a seed in, it's going to grow. But really, we don't make that happen. Everyone's an individual miracle. Now, do you see farmers out there just hanging their head in defeat? No. Uh, Here's what a farmer can do. He can prepare his own soil. He can break up his own fallow ground. He can make sure that his ground is as fertile as possible 
and trust God with everything outside of His control. You can't control other people's responses, can you? We'd like to sometimes. You can't control how people respond to confrontation. You can't control whether or not people listen to the Word of God. I've told you before, one of the greatest heartbreaks as a pastor is I can't believe for people. I can't listen for them. But here's what we can do. We can prepare our own soul. We can make the ground of reconciliation as fertile as possible from our end and leave the rest with God. All right, there in Ephesians 4, notice verse 17, and then we'll jump to the end. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, therefore is talking about the doctrinal foundation that came before, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Here's what he's telling him. If you are a real Christian, it's expected of you that you live differently from the fallen, godless culture around you. Why should we? Well, let's think about that. We actually believe what the Bible says about eternity. We actually believe what the Bible says about God's holiness and that His eyes are in every place. We actually believe in a coming day of judgment. We actually believe those who reject Christ will perish eternally. We actually believe God demands a holy life from us and deserves it. We actually believe our life is to be a continual worship of the Father in heaven. Now tell me something. You try to believe all that and not live it, and I'm going to tell you, you don't believe it. It's like a guy laying out on the highway, and you tell him a truck's going to come and run you over. He says, oh, I know, I know, I know. He's either crazy or he doesn't really believe it. Something's wrong with that picture. So Paul's saying, don't live like the lost world around you in the vanity, the uselessness of their mind. In other words, figuring things out on their own terms. Don't live that way. Their understanding's darkened. They're alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that's in them because of the blindness of their heart. Not a very flattering description. But the rest of this chapter flows from that context of not living like those who don't know the Lord. And a lot of things come out of that. In fact, this whole discussion at the end of Ephesians 4 is still a continuation. He's telling you an interpersonal conflict. Don't walk like the world around you. Don't handle conflict like people that have no hope, no truth, no Bible, no Holy Spirit, and no eternal home in the heavens. That brings us back to our highest reason, doesn't it, for learning forgiveness in the first place? So that God is glorified. I mean, do you realize when the world sees you handle interpersonal conflict in a way that honors the Lord, a lot of people in this society have never seen that. Uh, you ever confess sin to somebody without an excuse? And they sort of look at you with shock? And you say, well, no, I did this, I was wrong, I want to ask for forgiveness. And they say, oh, no, it's okay. No, you know, I know you were tired. and No, no, listen. I sinned against the God of heaven. There's zero excuse for it. I'm not going to make one. 
And what I'm asking for you is your forgiveness. And they look at you and they don't know what to say. Because all this world knows is excuses. Oh, I'm sorry I did that. I ate bad pizza last night. I'm sorry I did that. You know, I, uh, the alarm went off early and... Uh... You see, dealing with sin in a way that abases self and honors God makes people think right about the God in heaven. That's the highest reason for learning this. Alright, now, one of the things I want to point out in these next four verses... Verses 29 to 32. Now listen carefully to this. Notice in verses 29 through 32 what is tied together here. Okay? The manner of speech that comes out of your mouth, whether or not the Holy Spirit is grieved with your life, your inward heart attitude towards others, your outward treatment and disposition towards others, and your ability to forgive. All five of those are tied together as one package in this text. Because they very largely are tied to the exact same root. Now we'll talk more about that later. Our manner of speech, whether or not the Holy Spirit's grieved, our heart attitude towards others, our outward disposition and treatment towards others, and our ability to forgive, all of those are linked together. Now let's walk through these admonitions from the inspired pen of Paul for just a few minutes. Look at verse 29. Uh, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Uh, that particular Greek word that's translated corrupt, it's actually an adjective. It appears in five other places in the New Testament. And every one of those five is in the Gospels and comes from the mouth of Christ Himself. And uh, here's what the conversation is each time. He's contrasting a good tree with a corrupt tree. He's contrasting good fruit and corrupt fruit. He's contrasting in the kingdom parable of the dragnet, that which is the good catch, and that which is, he uses the word bad. Okay? All of that's the same word. The idea of corrupt is unprofitable, useless, putrefying, rotted. Now, not using corrupt speech does not mean never say anything negative. Sometimes we have to say things that that sound negative to deal truly with people's soul. I would say that telling somebody they're a depraved sinner who's under the judgment of God isn't the most positive thing on earth. But then again, neither is a doctor telling somebody they have terminal cancer. Truth hurts sometimes, but if you're gonna if you're gonna come to a cure, you better know the disease. Okay, so that kind of speech is not corrupt, uh, but what he's referring to is speech that is detrimental from heaven's perspective, uh, rather than building up, edifying, ministering grace. Later in the verse, rather than architecturally making a building or a person's life stronger, it tears down, it spreads decay. Well, so much could be said on that, I don't have time. It's venting thought patterns that are unbiblical. Undue words of negativity or gossip or unbelief or frustration or exasperation or insults or wrongful assumptions or whatever. The list is huge. 
Let no corrupt, rotted communication come out of your mouth, that which is going to tear people down from heaven's perspective. You know, here's a question that ought to be asked in our conversations. There's a lot of them, but here's one. Is what I'm going to say spiritually beneficial to this person? And if the answer is no, then we ought to develop the discipline to keep our mouths shut sometimes. He's saying, set a watch on your tongue. Don't let putrid words emerge. And friends, of course, we know from the lips of Christ Himself, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Friends, listen. You know, mathematically, you do these equations, such and such equals such and such. Here's a mathematical theological equation. Tongue problem equals heart problem. 100% of the time. Our tongue is an overflow valve for internal problems or internal good things. Let's say a car fails emissions testing. You live in a state where there's emissions testing. And they say, well, your car fails. How do you deal with that? You take a rubber mallet and a potato and beat it into the tailpipe? Well, problem solved. No, because what's going to happen? The pressure is probably going to build until that thing blows a hole in somebody's car. What they're going to tell you is go internally and fix the internal combustion problems so that the external's correct. Somebody says, I just can't control my tongue. The reason you can't control your tongue is because you won't control your mind. That's why. The tongue really isn't the problem. It goes deeper than that. Alright, so, no corrupt communication. Verse 30, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. And oh, there's so much that can be said. We just have to pass through. Uh, let me point out, though, it says, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Now, that word sealed, the idea is a signet ring. Now, back in, in, in old times, you know, a king, he would write a letter, it was on a scroll, and he would put hot wax on it, and he would take that signet ring that only the king wore, or he would give it to somebody he trusted, but that signet ring meant power and authority that nobody could break. And so when he wrote a message, it was sealed with his signet ring, and it meant game, set, match, this is going to happen. And so what it's saying about you and I, if you are a real Christian, not a pretender, a real Christian who's been washed in the blood of the Lamb, you have been sealed with the signet ring of God. It's like He's taken your life and stamped it with the letters M-I-N-E. Mine. By the way, I'm not going to get into it now, but that's one of the 45 reasons we reject the total heresy that a Christian can lose salvation. There is so much in Scripture to blow that apart. It's one of, the, one of the pillars in that verse. He's the earnest, the down payment of our inheritance. But in relation to our walk as Christians, here's what else that means. God is not just out there. How does the sinful patterns of the mind work? <laughs> Let's say here we are cherishing our little pet sin again. And... Uh, it can be some area of lust. It can be some area of anger. Maybe it's replaying some hurt uh, from back in 1964. Or whatever it is, 
And what's, what's our sin nature doing? Well, God's out there. You just be in here. Maybe you're in bed in the dark. Maybe you're in a closet. Maybe you're driving. And Well, it's just me, myself, and I here. And so we're just going to imbibe in this thing that, oh, the Spirit's convicting me, but I'm going to go ahead and keep doing it because God's out there. And you know, later in the day, I'll invite Him in and, and then we'll deal with it. The fact the Holy Spirit indwells you, you are His temple. He's ever-present with you. Let's say your thoughts go off the tracks. No one else sees it. Lucifer doesn't see it. He can't read minds. Angels can't see it. But what you're doing is you're taking those and you're laying them down like breaking bread in the Lord's presence and say, here, partake with me. Everywhere you go, what you say, what you talk about, what you hear, what you think, the Lord is walking right with you through the very inner corridors of your mind. He's that intimately associated with you. What does it cost Him to fellowship with us? I can't even imagine. And when it says, grieve not, He's saying, don't cause distress. Don't give heaviness to the Holy God dwelling within you. And can I tell you something? If God's wrath is infinite because of sin, His grief is also infinite because of sin. That's something you and I don't even know. Grieve not the Holy Spirit. Uh, verse 31. And we get to this uh, list I want to point out a couple of things. First of all, notice it's let all of these things be put away. Not part. All. And get rid of them. And uh, in other words, the Lord wants every shred of these inward traitors identified for what they are and cast out, and there's no condition given here. In other words, He doesn't say let these be put away as long as so-and-so does what I think they should. Secondly, think for a moment. Read through that list quickly in verse 31. <laughs> what causes the vast majority of those attitudes? It's our run-ins with other people, isn't it? I mean, when was the last time you got bitter about a tree in your backyard? I don't know, people say women get mad at people and men get mad at things. You ever heard that old adage? I don't think that's true across the board except for the men getting mad at things part. <laughs> the men get mad at people and things. It's irrational, I get it. I'm not saying all of it, but the most of it has to do with interpersonal issues. Third, notice this admonition comes before forgiveness is even mentioned. So forgiveness is going to be exercised coming out of this in other words, he's saying you break up your own fallow ground regardless. I mean, think about this. Let's say there's somebody you need to confront, and biblically you should confront them. The Bible tells you to do so in certain situations, which we'll discuss later. Uh, but uh, you can't do so for four days. Maybe they're sick or they're traveling or whatever. Does that mean just let your mind go wild for four days? I mean... Assuming this and condemning that and replaying. 
You see, that's where a dose of 1 Corinthians 13 needs to be poured into our mind, right? So he's telling us, independently of the response, or even before the confrontation's taken place, uh, break up your own fallow ground and deal with these things. Fourth, uh, you notice the wide variety of ugly attitudes uh, that can come from these interpersonal conflicts. I I find it interesting in these kind of lists because the Spirit of God is so precise in pointing out multiple heart sins with different shades of meaning. Uh, By the way, that's one of the amazing things about God superintending the Koine Greek language. Because the amount of precision in that language is about unparalleled in world history. I mean, you and I say somebody's mad, for instance. That could mean a lot of things, right? But you see, in the Greek, there's different shades of anger, different durations, different manifestations. That's part of what's going on here. See, it keeps us from justifying ourselves, like our flesh would have us do. Let's go through them. He says, let all bitterness... The word bitterness actually means acrid. It's terribly offensive odor. You know, you open a, a can of something that's just rotten to the core. Any of you, that probably never happens in anybody's fridge but ours, where you forget something's in there for a month. My wife doesn't do that often. She's thinking, oh, don't tell everybody that. But it, it, you know what I mean? You've, we've got, we have a large family. A lot of food goes through. And every once in a while, you're, you're going through the fridge and you're going, what is that? Because I don't recognize it and I haven't seen I was wondering where that pot was. Uh, and so you pull it out and you lift the lid. Oh boy, right? It's just... and That's the idea behind bitterness. It's this acrid, poisonous, offensive, smoldering resentment. Uh, a bitter person lets the actions of other people determine what they're going to become and what they will or won't do for the Lord. Think about that. A bitter person lets other people determine what they will or won't do for God. A bitter person is going to carry around an open wound. Uh, look, there's scars in life, aren't there? There's hurts that come that there's going to be a bit of a scar as long as we're in this flesh. But there's a big difference between a healed scar and a wound full of gangrene. You see, bitterness keeps us with the wound open. A bitter person will often put up the castle walls. I'm not letting anybody in because whatever. And then they build the moat and they get the 20-foot saltwater crocodiles out. And I'm, I'm just going to retire in here where it's safe and there's no pain and no risk. Let me tell you what else isn't inside that castle. Real discipleship. You're going to be involved building lives for Christ. Friends, it's flame to flame, not paper to paper. To build lives for Christ means it's going to hurt sometimes. I guess it's kind of like back to our farmer we were talking about. You know, a farmer can say, I've had it. I'm done growing the wrong fruit. I'm done growing weeds. I'm tired of tares in my field. So I'm going to get a a thousand pound or a thousand gallon drum of glyphosate. I'm going to poison everything. I'm going to kill everything green. 
I'm not putting any fertilizer. I'm not going to plow it. I'm going to let this ground get hard as a stone because then it'll never grow another weed. You know what else it won't grow? Fruit. won't grow fruit. We probably all know the words of Hebrews 12. He says, follow peace with all men. But then he tells us, look diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Spreads. How about the words wrath and anger? Those are two different Greek words. Wrath is speaking of explosive, this sudden outburst of passion. You know, we say somebody lost it. Uh, that's, that's the word behind uh, wrath. Uh, anger is, is a simmering disposition. You know, it's like the Italians, a real Italian, if he's going to make spaghetti for something, he's got it simmering for days to bring out the flavor. So uh, this word anger is like a, bot, a pot simmering just below boiling point. It's this disposition that's hidden on the outside. You can't really see it, but it's there. And it's burning. And it's smoldering. It's like the forest fires you get in Alaska that would uh, get buried under 12 feet of snow. And oddly enough, eight months later, six months later, the ground dries and the thing comes right up out of the ground and keeps burning. It's been smoldering under there for months. That's this word anger. It's kind of like, remember what Absalom's reaction was? over his sister Tamar and what happened to her? Remember? Uh, he wouldn't speak good or evil to his brother. Two full years go by. And here's Absalom with his all-is-well face. And then he murders his brother. Anger. Simmering below the surface. The word clamor means an outcry. It's this passionate, heated exchange. It's, it's bickering. It's red-faced discussions. Shouting somebody down. Winning the argument. Evil speaking is vilifying people. In other words, uh, uh, relaying a situation in such a way that we know they're going to look worse than they really are. How many of you love it when somebody tells a half-truth about you that makes you look awful? Uh, I don't see any hands going up. How many of us are guilty of that? There ought to be a lot of hands going up. I think all of us have been. So the idea is not vilifying people, uh, not slander, name-calling, undue harshness, insults, whatever. And then he says, how about this one? All malice. That's malignity. Uh, wanting to get even. I mean, fantasizing about how God is going to get even. Crouching on a perch like Jonah outside Nineveh, just waiting to say, I told you so. The Lord says in Romans 12, give place unto wrath. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And then He tells us, be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Uh, when our minds are dwelling on vengeance, we are overcome with evil. Alright, how's the soil in your spiritual farm this morning? Not somebody else's. How's yours? Well, let's be brutally honest, shall we? How many of you have found that these attitudes don't just go away because we tell them to or quote this verse? Huh. 
I say, oh, I got to stop doing that. I just, uh, I'm going to tell myself to stop. And by the way, don't think I stand up here speaking from some ivory tower. I don't. Sometimes I thought ministers are in the greatest danger of disobeying these things. Can I tell you something? Hurts come in the ministry. They come often. And oftentimes they come in such a way that the offending party never deals with it. It's commonplace. You ever met old pastors that are bitter? Chip on the shoulder? Not a pretty thing. You see, all of us are in danger of that. By the way, I hope some of you young people, and I don't like the term full-time ministry, you know what I mean by it though? If your primary vocation is something termed ministry, so to speak, I hope there's young people here that God calls to that work. And listen, it's a joyous work. There's rewards, there's blessings, there's joys, there's victories, but let me tell you something else. Pain is going to be your constant companion. And you'd better learn to deal with it before the throne of God no matter what other people do. Or it will kill you. Friends, listen, the only help that can come is from right thinking. That's it. Uh, most of you men, I think, were reading the Bible study book. Uh, the author quotes Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, listen to the statement. This was a profound statement talking about telling our mind to think rightly. Here's what Lloyd-Jones said. Have you not found that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? And what he's saying is, you're letting your mind go into its own charted territory based on your own fleshly ambitions and thoughts instead of actively silencing your wrongful thoughts and bringing them into subjection to the Word of God. That is so true. But here's what has to be realized. Anytime this list or part of this list characterizes you, now listen carefully, your controversy is not with people. Your controversy is with God. That hurts the flesh. But it's true. Nobody else can make us respond this way. The clock is saying bad things to me. I intended to get a lot further this morning. I think I probably better stop because uh, there's a whole lot more we're going with this. And I, I don't want to rush through it. But you have that outline before you, and Lord willing, we'll get to it when we get back to this. But those two pillars mentioned there, you can prime the pump this way. If your thought processes are not built on those two pillars, these things are going to defeat you perpetually. They absolutely will. But the good news is there's victory to be had. <laughs> like I said, I wish we could get a lot further, but we probably better pull up there. But again, let me ask the question. It's not like people can't search their own heart because I didn't finish a sermon. 
How's your soil this morning? What's it like? Between you and God, what's it like? You can deal with it before Him no matter what people do. Thank God He's given us provision in His Word for how. How about that first realm of forgiveness mentioned at the beginning? Judicial. You see, every one of us is born a rebel against God. We make life choices that push us farther away from Him. We rack up a debt of sin we can never repay. But God in His infinite mercy comes to us. He says to us, there is a way of salvation. God became man to bear an infinite penalty of sin that you and I racked up and could never repay. And somehow in those hours on that cross, the Lamb of God suffered all the wrath of the Father in heaven so that if you will come and take the salvation He offers, there will be no condemnation for you. Condemnation is God's eternal death sentence, and that sword hangs over everybody's life until they're in Christ. Are you in Christ? I'm not asking you to attend church. Have you read some nice books? Have you been made wet by sprinkling or dunking? Have you eaten certain holy things? None of those have anything to do with this discussion. Are your sins forgiven because you've taken the provision for salvation that God's given? You see, He said to every one of us, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. A false religion tries to dress man up from the outside. It says, do all these things and God will be happy with you. Christianity changes the heart first and says, now live according to the supernatural power that God's shown in your hearts. A false religion tries to tell you, do better, do better, do better, do more, do more, do more, do more. Real Christianity says Christ has paid it all. Now come walk with Him because of what He freely gives you. You see, that's why the real Christian can have joy in his relationship with God because I'm not serving Him because of fear of a beating or fear of flames. We serve Him out of love. How can we not serve the One who loved us enough to die in our place? Today can be the day of salvation for anybody here who will take it. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your unchanging love and goodness towards Your people. Lord, You know I'm frustrated to stop in the middle of this, but Thy ways are perfect. And I pray You'd help us to understand this still. Help us, Lord, to be honest and open before You. There's so much here we have to understand. Help us to yield unto Your principles, and I pray, Lord, You would make it plain to us when we are making excuses for a behavior that is grieving You. Father, thank You that though hurts may come, there is a place of quiet rest near the heart of God. There is a secret place of the Most High. Lord, there is a fellowship we can have with You that no other mortal can ever, ever force us to give up. Father, thank You for Your eternal covenant with all who will come to Christ. Thank You for the grace You give us to live out the commands that You give. 
In Jesus' name, amen.